Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, here's a question for you. Why are gender pay gaps so large in Japan and South Korea? Now, all East Asian tigers have converged economically with rich industrialized democracies. But only some have converged culturally in terms of gender equality. Singapore, Hong Kong and Taiwan are closing gender gaps in pay, seniority and parliamentary representation. Japan and South Korea, meanwhile, have the largest gender pay gaps in the OECD. Management remains 85% male. Female graduates are treated like secretaries, expected to pour the tea and run errands. In Japan, a female graduate earns the same as a man who has only completed school. For Korean women aged between 25 and 39, gender gaps in wages are indistinguishable between those with children and those without. In Europe, by contrast, there is a major penalty for motherhood. South Korea? Not so. Japanese businesses have lobbied against legislative change, even refusing sexual harassment training. Courts routinely deny systematic discrimination. Employers cannot even be sued for sexual harassment. Employees can only ask the Ministry of Labour for mediation. Accusations of abuse are mostly ignored. Many hypotheses have been offered for Japan and South Korea's gender pay gaps. These include four. I'm going to go through four, okay? One, sexist norms. But in 1900, East Asian women were equally unfree and oppressed, yet Singapore, Taiwan and Hong Kong have since become much more gender equal, as I said, achieving near parity in pay, seniority and representation. Okay, here's another hypothesis. Firms demand long hours, so discriminate against mothers. Well, no, that's not true. Singaporean and Chinese women work much longer hours. Moreover, South Korea's gender pay gap is unrelated to motherhood. That's been shown. Okay, hypothesis three. Large firms train workers in-house, so never ran out of skilled labour. I'm not convinced. All East Asian economies have experienced low unemployment. Japanese firms now complain of labor shortages. Japanese and Korean firms are also not especially large in the economy. Okay, here's a fourth hypothesis advanced for Japan. Spousal benefits, that is tax and healthcare, uh, create perverse incentives to keep female employment low. No, I don't buy it. Korea's gender pay gap is larger than Japan's, but it has no policy of spousal benefits. So what explains this discrepancy? Lifetime employment is the major structural difference between East Asia's tigers. During Japan's economic miracle, company managers soothed labor unrest by rewarding both white-collar and blue-collar workers with career paths and job protection. This same system was adopted in Korea. Now, given soaring productivity and double-digit growth, large firms were confident in continued labour demand. Workers were hired, trained, then stayed till retirement. To maximise output, employees are expected to work extremely long hours while also accepting reassignment to new locations. Commitment is rewarded by seniority pay for years of service rather than productivity. Quid pro quo. Work hard, 
and you'll be rewarded later. The wage premium for continued work in the same company is highest in Korea and Japan. As one immigrant observes, and I quote, the salaryman-employer relationship is best characterized as you swear yourself to us, body and soul, and in return will isolate you from all risks. Singapore, Hong Kong and Taiwan never developed this system of lifetime employment. Small and medium enterprises, SMEs, the main employers, they cannot afford long-term promises. Singapore adopted a flexi-wage system. Most workers are paid a, a basic monthly wage and variable performance bonuses. Now, Initially, some Japanese firms prohibited women from even taking their entrance exams. But from the mid-1980s, they experienced labour shortages, so increasingly incorporated women, but only as menial underlings. Companies created distinct career paths. Men are on the career track. Women are assigned the dead-end clerical track. Destined to servitude, women are largely denied positions of responsibility. Personnel officers openly say that women are uncommitted or incapable. Korea and Japan's gender pay gaps are not caused by lack of skills, childcare or underdevelopment. It is sexism. Male school leavers are much more likely to become managers than female graduates. Disrespect and discrimination loom large. Japanese and Korean women often feel pressured to quit upon marriage. Korean and Japanese wives typically then become non-regular workers, where their earnings are 40% lower and they lack benefits like their company pensions. Most Korean and Japanese men, meanwhile, remain in regular work on higher wages with job security and full benefits. So economically, Japan and South Korea have now converged with rich industrialized countries. But culturally, there is a huge difference. Management is monopolized by men. Now, here is an interesting and important fact which I think has been totally overlooked in this whole discourse. Gender income disparities are largest among low-ranking and less educated workers. This fact has been totally overlooked, but it sheds light on our puzzle. Men at the bottom of the pyramid are treated like workhorses. They lack high pay, status and seniority. Company loyalty is rewarded with patriarchy. In Shintani metals, blue-collar men are given positions of responsibility. They then use rough language to bully junior women. This has nothing to do with work hours or pregnancy. It is patriarchy. Low-status men are elevated above women. So my argument here is that Japan and South Korea have enshrined a system of lifetime employment and seniority pay for both blue-collar and white-collar workers. Firms are extremely sexist. Men are treated as future managers. Women are their subordinates. And these inequalities are largest amongst low-status regular workers. Fed up and frustrated, wives quit regular work to to spend more time with their kids and then undertake non-regular or low-paid work. But now you must be wondering, but Alice, why? Why are South Korea and Japanese firms so sexist? Well, here is my argument. Lifetime employment requires commitment from low-ranking men. Lifetime employment generates a unique tension. Employers want to heavily invest in worker skills, maximize working hours, 
while deterring exit. Seniority pay incentivizes workers to stay, but promises of increments in 20 years' time provide little solace to workers who are already exhausted. Now, companies initially tried to rally employees by heralding them as corporate warriors and selfless devotion and advance guard. Those are all Japanese terms. But over the 1980s, many became disillusioned. New terms entered public discussions, like death from overwork, karoshi, reluctance to go home, workers forced to live away from their families due to job transfers. These are Japanese words, um, which I won't say because you know I struggle with these translations. And also, windowsill tribe was a word, a term invented to refer to men who had been promoted to pointless jobs and then simply stared into the scenery. Headlines also featured stories of men dying from exhaustion. Japan and South Korea have extraordinarily high rates of male suicide. Now, male discontent generates a profound problem for corporations modelled on lifetime employment, heavy investment and seniority pay. While shorter work hours would help, this hasn't occurred. East Asian firms have sought to maintain global competitiveness through ultra-long hours. Now you see how this all fits together. South Korean and Japanese corporations have placated disgruntled men by entrenching patriarchy. If women were treated as equals, that would be polluting. It would undermine men's self-respect and work commitment. Why give yourself to a company that treats you like a mere woman? So company men's egos continued to be pampered after hours. Japanese firms allocate 5% of their operating budgets to nights out with charming hostesses. Masculine pleasure is corporate strategy. Singapore, Hong Kong and Taiwan never had these systems of seniority pay. Workers were simply rewarded with basic wages and productivity bonuses. SMEs didn't heavily invest in their workers nor expect lifetime commitment. Firms did not need to secure unwavering loyalty. This systematic difference mediated their incorporation of women. In the 1960s and 1970s, gender divisions of labor were broadly similar across East Asia. Women predominated in low-paid work and exited upon marriage. Motherhood was central to their identities. By the 1980s, demand for skilled male labor was outpacing supply. Given high female education, low fertility and sky-high productivity, it became profitable to recruit and retain women. While Singaporean, Hong Kong and Taiwanese firms were indubitably sexist, they didn't face the same challenge of placating low-ranking men. Lucrative job opportunities then raised girls' aspirations and status. By 1995, women comprised 50% of Taiwanese undergraduates, just like Britain. This sharply contrasts with Japan and South Korea's much larger gender disparities. Uh, In Singapore, Hong Kong and Taiwan, women overwhelmingly work full-time and make it to management. By 2002, 26% of Hong Kong's managers were women. Um, Even if their husbands become richer, Taiwanese women remain employed. Women want to work because they are valued. Singapore's adjusted gender pay gap is just 6%. Eager to engage fathers, the government of Singapore runs a month-long campaign called Dads for Life. The rise of respected, networked and wealthy women has increased their electoral competitiveness. 
gender quotas were adopted in Taiwan after feminist lobbying. Women now comprise 42% of legislators. Once in power, Taiwanese women sponsor more bills and favor women's interests. Taiwan's president was not only re-elected in 2020, but has achieved a very high approval rating of 73%. She is the only female Asian head of state who is not from a political dynasty. Over in Singapore, the People's Action Party introduced a quota to appeal to women voters. Since the 1990s, feminist coalitions have successfully overturned discriminatory laws. Attitudes are rapidly converging with Europe and North America. Now, South Korea and Japan, by contrast, have raised patriarchal expectations and now grapple with the consequences. Non-elite men now struggle to secure the status, social mobility and female servitude. Real wages have stagnated in Japan. Almost 30% of Japan's 50-year-old men have never married. And thanks to historic sex ratios, Korean men face a skewed dating market. Low-ranking men really struggle to get girlfriends. Jilted guys jizz into women's handbags, venting rage with what is now termed semen terrorism. Frustrated Korean incels seethe with self-righteous indignation, vilifying women on 4chan and delighting an anti-feminist president. Now, this story is not unique to East Asia. Throughout global history, Sexists have aggressively resisted female pollution. Male prestige has been preserved by banning women. As one English unionist despaired in the early 1900s, it was a crying evil to see women getting into the trade. When Kidderminster women were put to work on new looms, all the male weavers went on strike, one within a week, and maintained their monopoly of the trade. Working-class men also lobbied for restrictive labour legislation, such as the 1842 Mines Act. Only after the labour shortages did firms eventually remove marriage bans in the early 20th century. And let's not forget my former home, the University of Cambridge. When Senate House voted against women receiving degrees in 1921, male undergraduates triumphantly marched to Newnham College, grabbed a coal trolley and used it like a battering ram to, sl- uh, to smash down Cloughgate. Early 20th century Russian men were also extremely prejudiced. Unions relegated women to unskilled inferiors. But given high productivity targets and a massive shortage of workers, especially after the Second World War, Soviet firms reluctantly hired women. Like Japan, blue-collar men often earned more than female graduates. But Russian women pressed ahead and persevered. Today, women comprise over 40% of Russia's published economists and business managers. So industrialising communists and capitalists alike the world over have ultimately hired and promoted skilled women. South Korea and Japan buck the trend. Eager for the loyal commitment of low-ranking, exhausted and disgruntled men, companies have paid with patriarchy. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Alice Evans. Your comments and your critique are always welcome. Take good care of yourselves. Thank you.